Good morning, Bethel Church, and uh, greetings on a very special day for us as a congregation, because today we give the dedicatory uh, service for our new campus auditorium at our Cedar Lake campus. It's been a project for a year and a half, and today we get to give that, uh, that dedicatory prayer, and I get to be a part of that today. And in the thinking about um, how to, to do this, just felt like this was an opportunity really for all of our campuses to think about uh, our wonderful facilities that God has given to us and to see them through a biblical grid. Now, before I uh, get into my message this morning, I think it'd be kind of fun to see what that new place looks like. And so why don't you roll that video right now and uh, let's take a look. looks good, don't it? I think it does. Indeed, it really does. And for our Cedar Lake campus, today is going to be really, really an exciting day, and we've got some special plans that uh, we're going to be doing at that, uh, at that location today, and I get to be a part of that. And so I just do indeed want to say thank you to all of those of you who have donated to Mission Them. Uh, we did that project as a part of Mission Them 2.0. You might recall it was two years ago we stood in front and said, hey, here's what we think God's calling us to do. We think God is calling us uh, to go to the Hobart Portage community. We said Portage, and look what God has done. And we have now a campus there, and things are growing there, and we're excited about what God is doing at that campus. And we said, we think that we're going to Gary. And we have no idea how that's ever going to happen, but we think God wants us to go to, to Gary. And here we are two years later, and we have a campus there, and we've got ministry going on there, and worship services going on there. We've got a facility there. And we said to you that we, we think that we need to build a, a new auditorium, some new ministry spaces at Cedar Lake. And here we are now, not even two years uh, till that announcement had been made, and this building is operational today, up and running. Today is dedication. Next week is grand opening. So really, it's going to be this coming week that we're going to be sort of, you know, advertising and, and uh, that kind of thing. But um, all of that has been made possible by those of you who have so wonderfully and sacrificially given to mission them, and frankly, to the church. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like sort of one pot, really, and to do all these ministries out of all of these um, uh, donations and giving is a wonderful, wonderful privilege, and we just want to say thank you. And one of the ways that we want to say thank you is tonight, 
uh, we are having an open house at our Cedar Lake campus, and all are invited to come. Uh, Jennifer and I are going to be there, and some other leaders will be there to give tours and show you around. And um, it's easy to find. It's right on Highway 41, just south of 133rd Avenue. That's like the main intersection in Cedar Lake. And uh, you'll see it there on the west side of the road. Some of you have never been there even to see the first part of uh, what we have there. But uh, come on out and be a part of it. It's going to be a fun time just looking around and imagining all the things that God is going to do there. And for me, this is a little bit, it's like that movie Groundhog Day, which uh, is kind of a classic movie. It's been out forever. And if you know the story, the Bill Murray character, you know, he, he wakes up that next, that first day and he sees the same people greeting him and the weather's the same. And he's kind of freaking out like, man, this just feels the same as, as yesterday. And it feels a little bit that way for me on a day like this, because I blink and I go back to May of 2000 when we had our very first Sunday in this facility. And we had met for 72 Sundays at Maryville High School, set up, tear down, set up, tear down, set up, tear down. And we've gone through all the process of, of you know, this campus and building and site work and all of that. And I can still, it doesn't seem that long ago that, uh, that I can blink and to just think about what it meant for us to walk into this place and to see what God had provided to us. And so as I was thinking about that, um, I, it just got me thinking about, and I am giving the, the kind of dedicatory message at Cedar Lake today, um, how important it is for all of our campuses to view biblically what we have. We're blessed. All four of our campuses have wonderful facilities, and we gather there on the weekends and through the week. We got all kinds of ministry going on in these places. And so I'm going to give here and uh, through our video stream to Hobart Portage today the same message that I'm going to give at the Cedar Lake dedication here in uh, an hour and a half. And uh, so by this, we can do what we often do here at Bethel Church. And I hope this is a hallmark of the church and it's true for the church, you know, until Jesus comes, is that whenever we think about something, we, you know, we bring out the Bible and we say, how can we look at this particular aspect of life through the grid of Scripture? How can we look at this aspect of ministry through the grid of Scripture? And how then as a church uh, can we and should we view things like the facilities and, and the land and the different things that we have going on through a biblical grid. And it's exactly what I did in 2000. In fact, this message is just a refreshed version of the same message I gave 15 years ago when we moved into this facility. And that's part of the beauty of the Bible is that if it's biblical truth you're teaching, it's always relevant. It always remains relevant. It is the eternal word of God. I think back 15 years ago, and I remember our excitement and our joy. I remember people walking in here first time going, wow, isn't this great? I remember uh, we had former pastors that were here. We had Pastor Troyer, and we had Pastor Joe Stoll, who um, actually died a short time later after, after that. And yet he was able to be here, and uh, we celebrated. There was just such a wonderful spirit in the place. And, you know, to think about what really is this? 
Because clearly, you don't have to have buildings and facilities to be a church. You know, right today, there are thousands of churches in China that are gathering, and they have no building. They're in a field. They're in somebody's basement. I see one couple here, their, their children serve in China, and they know this well from, from their own children's experience. And, you know, there wasn't an established kind of church facility that we're aware of for the first three centuries of the church. So you don't have to have buildings and things like this in order to fulfill the call of what it means to be a church. And yet, we live in a day uh, where we, we, we can have these, and most of us are really glad that we have these kinds of facilities, but how do we view them? How should we look at them? And I think this is important for all of us to keep in mind because these kinds of things, anything material like this, is always a slippery slope for us. Because on the one hand, if you make too much of them, you end up making an idol of them, which is pantheism. If you don't make enough of them, you end up with the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, which said, nothing material is good, it's all bad, only what is spiritual is what matters. And we want to avoid both of those. And uh, if you've been around churches very long, you know that quietly and subtly, these things can take on a kind of sacredness. I was preaching uh, not so long ago in a church out of town, and I was talking about the glory of Christ and the supremacy of Christ in all things, a familiar theme in my preaching, as you know. And I made the point, I said, you know, in a church, when Jesus is not the big thing, when, when, when the church is not focused on the glory of Jesus, people will fight about the most petty things. Like, they'll get all crazy fighting about the color of the paint and the color of the carpet. I mean, petty, silly things, is what I said. After the service, the pastor came up to me and he said, he goes, you may not know it, but we recently painted our auditorium and there's been this huge fight about the paint in the auditorium and I had somebody come up to me and say, did you feed him that line? I knew nothing about that. I still stand behind the statement though, right? These things can be too important. And we don't see them in their proper place. And then God's people get all wonky, fighting about things that are so much less than the things we ought to care about, the gospel, the glory of Jesus, etc. So in here in Luke 21, we have Jesus giving a wonderfully balancing perspective. So if you would turn there, Luke chapter 21 this is in the final week of his earthly ministry. This is uh, known as his Passion Week. He's in Jerusalem. He's hanging around the temple area. He's involved in teaching. He is a couple days from being crucified. So there in the temple, verse 1, it says that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. This is the famous widow's might. And if you look at this passage, you could... 
You can actually organize it around what impresses Jesus and what doesn't impress Jesus. Clearly, he is impressed by the faith of the widow. And what was it about her faith specifically that he was impressed with? Frankly, or uh, 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 whatever the right adverb would be there, (laughs) not frankly, but let's go with moreover. How's that? She showed her faith by her generosity. Even though she had very little, her giving showed that her faith and trust was actually in God to meet her needs. And the idea here is the rich are dropping in their big bags of money, you know, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom into the offering plate. And people are like, wow, look how much that guy gave. Wow, look how much they gave. They're so generous. But the widow, plink, plink, goes her little pennies. And Jesus goes, now that's impressive right there. Because she was giving out of her poverty and her faith impressed Jesus. We could say it this way, in God she trusts. In God she trusts. Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, uh, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Okay, so the story goes on there. They're in the temple. The disciples begin to comment and to note the size and the grandeur and the beauty of the temple. Now, the temple that's being described here is really the, it's the third temple. Quick story of the temples in Jerusalem. We go back to Solomon, the very first temple. Remember, David was a man of war, a man of blood. God said, you're not the one to build the temple. Your son Solomon will build the temple. And Solomon built an incredible temple. And Solomon was the richest man on earth. He lavished that temple with gold and silver and costly stones. It was apparently an amazing thing to see. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of worship. If there was ever a building on earth that deserved to be venerated, it would be Solomon's temple. It became for them, it it represented their entire faith. It represented Judaism. The temple was so very, very, very dear to the Jewish people. It was the first temple. Well, if you know the story, Israel rebels against God, and God judges them. The Babylonians come in 586, and they wipe out Jerusalem. They wipe out Solomon's temple. They take all the articles from the temple, and off it goes to Babylon. So for over 70 years, the temple lays in ruins. When God brings his people back, as he promised, and there was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, who was the leader there in Jerusalem, who led the rebuilding of the temple. And so that was the second temple in Jerusalem. But at that time, Israel was just a shadow of its former glory. It didn't have the wealth. It didn't have the things that Solomon had. And so the second temple is not nearly as impressive as the first temple, but at least there's a temple on the Temple Mound in Jerusalem, and for that the people rejoiced, although the older people, remembering the glory of the former, wept at the shadow of the second. So it remained in that condition until just before uh, the turn of the millennium, when King Herod who was a kind of under king, under the Roman Empire. He was a regional king. 
but he was a tremendous builder. And he set about to build a temple in Jerusalem, essentially to renovate, remodel. This is like the ultimate HGTV fixer-upper that Herod did there because he took that second temple and so dramatically changed it that it's known as Herod's temple. It's the third temple. And this amazing building project that Herod undertook, it began in 20 B.C., It did not complete until 64 A.D., 84 years of construction on this temple. Now, I'm personally glad that our project at Cedar Lake did not take that long, and we thank all of the construction people for speeding it up. But this took a very, very long time, and it was impressive by any standard. A few things to tell you about it. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus, who saw this temple, tells us that some of the stones in the building were seven and a half feet high and nine feet wide. Stone, okay? Huge. To this day, if you go to Jerusalem, you can look down. There's little windows where you can look down to the old stones that were the bedrock stones of that temple, and they are enormous. Here's Josephus talking about the glory of this building. The exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eyes. He who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never in his life seen a glorious building. One person writing about this, it legitimately deserved a place as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is the temple that Jesus is walking around. This is the temple that he is teaching in. And this is the temple that the disciples, as they're strolling through the portico, look around and are like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And when you think about what, as it's being described, it's hard for me to think that, uh, that, that, that any of us or all of us would walk around that building without looking up and going, this is really cool. I mean, look at the architecture here. Look at the size of these bricks and the stones and the beauty and the grandeur. We, we, you know, we'd be like tourists. You'd, you'd have your camera out going, wow, look at that and look at that and look at that. Although nobody does that anymore, I know. I'm dating myself by doing that. Uh, but that's how we all would probably be if we had an opportunity to walk through this temple. So the disciples are not like crazy here. They're, they represent us looking at a material structure and being impressed by it and thinking that it really is something admirable. Jesus, we see, has a very different perspective. Look at verse 6. He said, as for these things that you see, Okay, the temple, the stones, precious stones. The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not be at once. 
So the disciples, they've got their cameras out. They've got their filming. They're taking selfies and all of this around the temple area. And Jesus says, you're impressed by this? I want you to realize the day is coming very soon when all of these massive stones and all of this beauty will be entirely torn down. What is Jesus saying in this? Jesus sees the temple in its redemptive significance. They are impressed by the stones. Jesus is looking at this redemptively. He knows what is about to happen. And for the Jews, this was like a crazy thought. Like, what do you, this thing's been being built for decades. It's huge, it's massive, Herod, Rome. How could there ever come a time when this incredible building would be torn down? And remember, this was not just a building for them. It was venerated as, it was a a house of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. It was, you know, this is why Jesus said, remember this in John uh, 2.19, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They brought up that accusation against him uh, in his trial. It was one of the things that the Jews were like, he is a, he's a nut job. Herod's been building this since before the turn of the millennia, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? We need, to, we need to get rid of this guy. The temple was so sacred to them. But Jesus knows the future, and he is viewing this building redemptively. And in terms of redemption, how much longer did that temple have any role in the story of God? Two days. Two days. Why do I say that? When Jesus died at three o'clock, what happened in the temple? the veil was torn in two. And from that moment on, access to God did not depend upon a physical structure. It was a matter of faith in the human heart, in Jesus, and access through his high priestly role to God in prayer and in faith and in worship. So it had two more days of, having, of mattering, The disciples are impressed. Jesus sees this through the grid of the gospel and through the grid of redemption. Secondly, we see here that there is a misplaced admiration of beauty. A misplaced admiration of beauty. The beauty of the temple was keeping them from seeing what real beauty was. I mean, imagine that moment. Here Jesus is, the disciples are there. And they're looking at the stones and the precious uh, metals and all the things that went into this, the size and the grandeur. They're like, man, this temple is amazingly beautiful. And walking amongst them is ultimate beauty. Jesus himself, the most beautiful being or thing that has ever been found in this universe. It is Jesus. This is, this is like, I try to draw the analogy off the top of my head, but you know, this is, this is like the child who is at the Grand Tetons at a beautiful sunset and they're playing on their phone and going, this phone is amazing. I just got 400 bonus points in my game as the sun sets on the Grand Tetons. And the parent just says, 
What are you doing? Look at that. The disciples with the temple are like the child on the, on the game. And there is Jesus, the grand Teton of spiritual beauty, walking amongst them. It was a distraction for them. Jesus is so much better. He's so much more beautiful. He's so much more wonderful than any stone could be or any brick could be. I think this is an important analogy. You think about down through the centuries how God's people have done the same thing, to venerate the building more than the real beauty, to, to, to somehow get captured with the structure and not see what that house of worship is intended to draw our attention to, and to be about that instead of ultimate beauty, to miss what really matters. I think about any of our campuses and any of our facilities, as wonderful as they are, they're no Jesus. They are no Jesus. And we need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap that many of our brothers and sisters have. You go to Europe, you know, what do they have? They have buildings, but they don't have Jesus. They have tourists, but they don't have Jesus. They've got amazing stained glass but they don't have Jesus. They've got big buildings and nobody goes to them. Why? Because buildings don't capture the longing of the human heart. But Christ does, and Christ will. So is any of our facilities a temple? No. Are any of them a sanctuary? No. The sanctuary of the new covenant is the human heart, and it is there that we worship in spirit and in truth. And for the sake of the video stream, would this campus please say amen? amen? To encourage our brothers and sisters at other locations. So, what is it then? Like what place or what role do these things have properly understood? And this is what I would say, that this building that we're dedicating Today in Cedar Lake, or this building at Crown Point, or that wonderful facility that we have in Gary, or at our HP campus, all of them are tools. They are tools. Tools for God to use for kingdom work and for his glory. Now, that's not to demean them. Tools are wonderful things. You talk to any craftsman or painter, Say, hey, how important are your brushes? I, 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 I take care of my brushes. I try to have the best brush I can possibly have. Why? Is it about the brushes? No, it's not about the brushes. The brush is a means to a beautiful painting. And you talk to a, a, a construction worker. Those tools are the means to a quality construction. And, and whatever trade you're in, you probably have things that you use that are not the, the, the end, but they are a, a very important means to an end. And when we think about living where we do in, in America, where we have the opportunity to buy land, to have a house of worship, the police, at least at this point, aren't rushing in here right now and closing us down. They're not uh, tearing down our building like they did the big church in China, if you saw that a few months ago, et cetera, et cetera. We have the privilege of having places of worship and places of ministry and places uh, to teach children. And we've got classrooms and we have 
gathering spots for God's people to fellowship, and we're able to uh, sing worship to God together, and we can use these tools in whatever way God creatively brings to us to maximize kingdom work for the glory of God. They are tools. They are wonderful tools. They're not a temple. This building that we have built one day will be destroyed. This facility here at Crown Point someday will be destroyed. Peter tells us the day is coming when the elements will all burn with fire. There is nothing but the Word of God and people in this world presently that is going to endure. So that ought to shape the way we look at our cars and our houses and our smartphones and our church buildings. But dedicated to the glory of God and the work of God, God can use facilities in wonderful ways. And we certainly pray today, as we dedicate that facility, we pray that God would indeed do that. To have a place, a context for gospel ministry, for God's people to gather, for the word of God to be preached. These are wonderful things. That if we didn't have it for a week, we'd be like, oh man, I miss having a place where we can get together and we can enjoy those wonderful spiritual activities. So it is not a temple, it is a tool. And I say, if it is a tool, that we use it for maximum effectiveness. When a first grader draws pictures of his family on the wall in the children's ministry using church crayons, I say that we are glad that that first grader is there, and we put a coat of paint over it. When a teenager accidentally breaks a window, being a part of a youth ministry, if it is an accident, (laughs) I say that we're glad that we built something where that teenager could hear the gospel. When unbelievers come here, and talk like unbelievers, and act like unbelievers. I say that we'd be glad that we have an opportunity to rub shoulders with unbelievers and to share the message of Jesus with them. So this whole thing is one giant tool. All the campuses that we have, whatever God gives us is one giant tool. We don't worship tools, right? That's the old uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor, the old TV show, he worshipped his tools, and everybody thought it was so funny to see the guy that worshipped his tools. We don't worship tools. There is nothing sacred here, materially. There is nothing eternal here, materially. J.C. Ryle, guy I like a lot, 100 years ago wrote, the fairest combinations of marble and stone and wood and painted glass are worthless in God's sight, unless there is truth in the pulpit and grace in the congregation, the temple in which the Lord delights most is a broken and contrite heart renewed by the Holy Ghost. Friends, how do we honor a tool? How do you honor the tools in your garage? By putting them away and making sure that you never do anything with them? No, you honor a tool by using it. And I say we use all these things that God has put at our disposal for maximum 
effectiveness. And that's not just the church. That's you and me and all the things that God has granted to us, all the resources, all the blessings, all of that dedicated to the glory of God. You know, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that when in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is ruling and reigning, even the bells on the horses will say, dedicated to the Lord. And we as the church have the opportunity to live that out even now in, in exile in this world. But for everything that I have and all that we have as a church, for all of it to be dedicated to the glory of God. We don't worship it, we use it effectively. We take care of it. You know, you, does that painter take care of his brushes? You bet he does. Does the, does the, does the uh, craftsman take care of his his tools, he keeps those blades sharp. He wipes them down at the end of the day. Why? Because those tools are important for the ultimate goal that he has. So we ought to take care of them for sure. But we don't worship. We don't worship them. And to say finally, this building that we're doing and really all of our campuses is being dedicated as a place where Jesus is magnified a place where Jesus is magnified. The mistakes that the disciples made in this was that uh, they missed the greater reality for the lesser reality. And the greater reality at that time is the same as it is right now. The greater reality is Christ, his life that he lived in this world, the most amazing life of moral beauty and moral perfection, that life of compassion and love lived for others, the kind of sacrifice that he made in his life and ultimately on the cross, dying as a substitute for us, bearing in his body and in his psychology and his conscience the guilt for the sin of the world, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That willing life, he gave up his spirit. The cross didn't kill him, the Romans didn't kill him. He died willingly in our place, resurrected on the third day, ascended to heaven at the right hand of God, coming again. That is the ultimate reality. He is the ultimate reality. This Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He is King and Master. And our buildings and our lives, our everything, must be dedicated to magnifying the glory of Jesus being a kind, of, a kind of megaphone for what we have discovered him to be, for our hearts to be filled with gladness in him, and for all that I am and all that I have to be, to be used towards and aligned towards that one central goal of making much of him, including our buildings and our facilities. My dear friend and hero Charles Spurgeon, on the day they dedicated the Metropolitan Tabernacle, said this, Again, a hundred years ago, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, but if I am asked to say what is my creed, I think that I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel who is himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, truth, and life. Charles Spurgeon, May, March 25th, 1861. 
So when people in Southwest Lake County ask, hey, what is that thing about? We saw it in the paper. What is that facility all about? We say it is all for him. Why did you guys build it? We built it for him. Who did you dedicate it to on that dedication Sunday? We dedicated it to Jesus Christ. What are you going to use that for? We are going to use it to magnify Jesus to as many people in Northwest Indiana and around the world as we possibly can. To Jesus Christ alone be the glory in all things, in all things. And in this church, Bethel Church, to him alone be the glory for everything. Amen and amen. Would you please join me for prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, today we do thank you that we are a church richly blessed. We thank you that we sit here in this place in chairs dedicated to your glory. Hearing the word of God dedicated to your glory. Having brothers and sisters around us in relationships dedicated to your glory. Leaving here to go to lives and homes and driving cars and doing jobs and with families and relationships dedicated to your glory. Lord, I pray that this dedication Sunday would not simply be the dedicating of brick and mortar, but the renewal and the revival of a heart dedication of our church, of all that we are, to Jesus and to his glory. To him alone be all the honor, all the power, all the praise, all the worship, both now and forevermore, we pray in his name. Amen.